we're going to do an audible. So um, this morning, Suzanne Chance, who's looking for her notes. Has anybody seen notes laying around, like in the front row? So, you know, if the, the, thing, the great thing about a worship service versus a performance, in performance, if things go wrong, you fail. In worship, the only thing that can go wrong is your heart. And so we don't really care about calling audibles. Suzanne's going to share, um, it was tremendous, about um, gratitude in the face of suffering. But somehow between first service and now, she lost her notes. She would do just fine without them. But we're going to, and then Robert shared as well. So I'm going to have Robert go first. Robert and I have been friends since 1986. 1986. And you were how old? Two. Tia. Yeah. Right. <laughs> See, you can keep telling himself that. Um, so I'll just let you have it. But Robert has suffered as, as much as, you got him? Oh. A- another thing that we don't really care. There you go. Test. Yeah. So Robert has suffered in a, a lot of ways. Um, we're not going to go into, and, but he has really the last few years leaned into gratitude in the face of suffering. So why don't you just tell us some of what God's done, Robert? Sure. And last service, I didn't follow my notes as well, I didn't think. And so Susan's looking for hers. So I'm going to try to follow mine a little bit more, a little bit better, more succinctly, but um, yeah, so about a year and a half, last summer, not even a year and a half ago, but uh, yeah, last summer um, I met a significant uh, period of trials, um, and I felt in that time that it was a kind of a personal attack, and I won't go into details, but it was monumentally the toughest period uh, of my life, and it was depleting uh, it was discouraging. Um, it was it was fearful, um, and uh, I really questioned um, what God was doing to me. And and I say to me because I felt like this was being done to me. But because of my brand of brothers, Terry and Jim and Rodney and Justin and Paul and and a few others, really challenged me in the Word. Um, a time where I could not call on the scripture to give me strength, uh, and a time where I couldn't call on um, how to be grateful. My brothers were doing that from, for me. And I learned after that a whole new perspective about what it means to rely on the strength of God and not your own. And I was blessed through that trial. And since then, there have been other trials uh, this past year that have been significant, that, but I had to reframe, and I had to remember this is a test, and God is using me for something, and I'd have to do self-talk to tell myself, God, uh, Robert, you're going through this. This is a test. Stay faithful. Stay true. There is a blessing on the other side. Three months ago, uh, my grandson uh, was born with hydrocephalus, and um, and we knew in utero that there were going to be challenges with that. Um, um, we were at Children's Mercy for a couple of weeks and had a uh, couple of meetings with the pediatrician, only to find out that my dear grandson was deaf and blind um, as a result of it. And my son um, uh, was just overwhelmed, and um, I had to deal with that Number one, I was suffering through that myself as a grandfather, but it was conflated with his suffering. And God, how can I help my son navigate through this, who was experiencing tremendous grief and guilt because of some of his own personal choices that he felt like played a role in that. God, where are you? 
where are you? And I said to myself, God, I know that you're sovereign. I know, I know you're sovereign. Where are you? And you know what? I told myself about two or three weeks later, if I believe that God is sovereign over my life and everything, he's sovereign over this situation too. And so with that said, my son and I have had some beautiful moments, some wonderful moments of praying together, crying together, and trusting on God's strength to help carry him through. Another trial at Youth Horizons, one of my staff members walked into a room, and it was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit told this staff member to walk in that room only to find a kid on the ledge with the noose around his neck and it tied to the dresser. I ran out to the ranch to actually to see the setting and, and I walked in and I said, God, where are you? But at the same time I said, God, where are you? I said, God, thank you. Thank you because the Holy Spirit prompted this staff member to walk in that room, and he intervened on that behalf. There's immense gratitude um, in that. It's about reframing. It really is about a change of perspective. This last year has changed uh, so much uh, uh, for me. I haven't shared this with, Tom, with, with Terry and others. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, a week and a half ago, um, my uncle in Oklahoma, um, My only uncle on my mother's side, 70-year-old man, took in my cousin, his daughter, who had gone through a terrible divorce. And the husband um, showed up at the house with a gun to kill them all. And I haven't shared this, uh, Terry, with you. The grandchildren ran to the room, Grandpa, Grandpa. The father started shooting through the door, shot my uncle's femur, shattered his knee, shot him in the liver, and shot him in the head. This is a man of God. He loves the Lord. God, where are you? He survived. He lost his eye. He shot back and killed the man in the home. It was a tragedy. God, where are you? I drove to Tulsa to be with my uncle in surgical intensive care. And we prayed and we talked. He's grateful that God spared his life and that he can be a testimony in the last decades of his life to someone else. It's about the change of perspective. For me personally, it was another difficult thing for me to have to endure. But I kept saying to myself, God, where are you in this? And you know what? He was right there. Gratitude, a change of perspective. Terry talks about suffering. Terry talks about suffering. What matters now matters at the end. What matters at the end matters now. You know what? Suffering matters now. And I have suffered this past year, but I have suffered for a greater cause, and I know that. But I have to tell myself and self-talk and say, God, bless me. I will bless you. God, you have blessed me through all of these difficulties. And from that, I can only say to you, 
is through the suffering that some of you may face. Reach out. God is there. He is sovereign even over that situation. Uh, be grateful. I have learned. Be, be, uh, be in a spirit of gratitude and think about um, the blessing in that test more so than the anxiety of that test. Thank you, River. Thanks. Did you find them, Suzanne? Improvise. Uh, that's what I'm talking about. <clears throat> You're awesome. Thanks. There you go. Thank you. All right. My name is Suzanne Chance. Um, and as part of today's Thanksgiving message, I was asked to share some perspective on what it is to practice Thanksgiving or being thankful, actually, during uh, challenging times. And our family has been through uh, some challenging times, especially related uh, to a medical situation uh, that my husband's been dealing with. Uh, Doug and I have been married 23 years. Uh, just as a little background, some of you know our story. Um, we have three children, Cal, Anna, and Allie, um, who all attend here. In June of 2022, uh, Doug was diagnosed with stage two uh, throat cancer, cancel the vocal cord, actually. It was such a shock to us. Um, but in going through all of our medical testing, we, we were told that had a super high chance of knocking out this cancer with um, a little bit of radiation. Six weeks, we'd be on our merry way, and in a year, it'd be a distant memory. It didn't quite work out that way. Um, within about three and a half months, the cancer was back, and so we found ourselves uh, in Houston at MD Anderson, um, beginning another journey of re-radiation and immunotherapy, which we did uh, back here in Wichita. Um, where we are now, uh, Doug's been incredible, um, and, uh, but we've, just, we've had a lot of complications, included a lot of suffering, and so we're at a place of waiting right now. So I guess the, the question is, how do you practice thankfulness when there's so much uncertainty and frankly you're watching someone you love um, endure a lot of pain and suffering. And I will tell you, first and foremost, it's acknowledging who God is. That's the, that's the first way that I show my thankfulness is who God is, that he's constant, that, and, and praising and thanking him every day that he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Um, I, I'll tell you that, you know, like anybody, like any wife who loves her husband, uh, I went through all the emotions. I was... I had anguish, I was um, worried, I had fear. Um, we were mourning the loss of his health and, and the unknown road ahead, but at the end of the day, um, that's a circumstance. That's, God is, um, has demonstrated and he continues to demonstrate his faithfulness to us. And so I remind myself of that daily um, in terms of praising him and thanking him for that. Um, there are a lot of Psalms that we listen to that we study for um, Doug. He's got Psalm 46 that, that's been his favorite for years. It's taken on new meaning. For me, you know, it's, it's um, remembering, you know, John 16, 33, you know, there will be tribulation, but, but take heed, I've overcome the world. So just remembering that God is trustworthy and that he's with us has given me an incredible amount of peace throughout all of this. But the second way that we have... Um, really incorporated thankfulness into, into our daily routine is, is really stepping back and acknowledging 
all the things that he's doing for us on a daily basis. It, it's very easy to look at cancer and, or any big obstacle in front of you and be overwhelmed by it. It is overwhelming. But you have to actively choose to find the good things, the joy. God's providing for us even when we don't know he's providing. But I can give you a long list anytime you want to visit with me of the miraculous things he's done for us. He cares for us. He loves us. And we choose to focus on that. Another way that we've really, that's been a huge part of our walk through this for the past 18 months is um, really sharing the, the hope we have with everybody else who's walking this journey with us. Everybody at MD Anderson has got a, a bad thing going on, 100% of the people. Um, when, when Doug was, we were there uh, in June, and Doug was getting ready for some tests, and he was visiting with um, the nurse that was prepping it, and they were chit-chatting, and he finally turned to her and said, you're a believer, aren't you? And she said, yes, I am. And he said, I don't know how people walk this through this without Christ, because without Christ, there is no hope. She said, I can tell 100% of the time who the believers are because they come in with joy, they're smiling, they have peace. He said the, she said, the non-believers, um, they're angry, they are fearful, and they have no hope. Um, and, and by the way, those are, those are, everybody's fearful at times, right? So I'm not knocking fear. We've, we've had our own share of fear. But, but at the end of the day, there's, we have the knowledge that we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And that gives us peace no matter how this goes and no matter how long this journey takes us, how far it takes us. Um, but there's been a lot of natural conversations that have come out of just being able to sit next to someone in a waiting room or in a testing area or in a parking garage, quite frankly, and just sharing your faith and encouraging them. But um, there's, a, there's a, another key way, and, and it's really the last way um, that I've found just a, a great way for me to express thankfulness, and that's really just trying to be a vessel for God's goodness. Um, there are people all around me at work, in, in my neighborhood, wherever I go, that are hurting and suffering, and everybody's suffering looks a little different, but one of the things that I've always told my kids is see people. You know, look to your right, look to your left, Notice them, engage them, talk to them, find out about their story, and see if you can bless them, help them, serve them in some way. We're, we all have to lean in on each other because, frankly, for us, we're in a place of waiting. We're not quite sure, you know, um, we hope Doug's healed. We pray that he is, but um, we still have to move forward with life. And I think the, the way I sort of would like to close this is you, you never know um, what, what God's doing behind the scenes. You just, you just have to step forward in faith. And I think this season, unlike any other in my life, has taught me to step out and be courageous in a way that I probably never have, have been before. Um, my mom passed away in uh, March of last year, and then shortly thereafter, that's when Doug was diagnosed, and there was a lot going on. But my mom and dad's next-door neighbor was very ill and uh, had about 20% heart function was not going to be around long, and we had had some faith conversations with him, but he felt like what he had done in his past was too great to be forgiven. So uh, I thought of Roger, Terry's dad, and I, I just, I knew he was, he could probably reach this man in a way that I couldn't. So I 
saw Roger and I asked him on a Sunday if he'd be willing to, to visit with this man. He said, of course. So I said, sure. So it's the intention of calling him. I was going to do that. He, I didn't call him. I, was, I got busy. Roger called me, left a message. Hey, I just want to know, if, uh, you know when I can come out and meet your neighbor. You know, left me another message. He texted me, which really just knocked my socks off. I was so joyful to get that text from him. I was worried about how I was going to introduce him. How could I coordinate this and make it comfortable for him? Roger didn't care about being comfortable. He said, just give me the address. <laughs> okay, sent him the address. He was there the next day. The, the irony of this whole situation is that this man needed some portable oxygen to be able to, to go places and do things. He just had these little tanks. They didn't have a means to, to do anything. Roger just so happened to have an oxygen tank in his trunk. That only God, right? That's only God. He let this man borrow this oxygen tank. And the next two times Roger came to see him, he was in the hospital. The last time Roger visited with him, he was unable to speak. He couldn't do anything. Roger led him to the Lord through a series of hand squeezes. And he, even in spite of the fact that he couldn't talk, when, when Roger got up to leave, and, and Roger made sure he understood the whole way what he was doing, when he got up to leave, Roger said goodbye, and he spoke. The man spoke, and he said, I'll see you. But the point is, is that man is in heaven, actually, with Roger right now, because Roger was bold. He, nothing was going to stop him from telling him the truth. And I, I would just tell you, in the season of uncertainty and, uh, frankly, just hardship, that, that there is joy to be had if you will put yourself out there and go find it. Thank you. So the largest question for humans has always been what to do with suffering. They even made up a fancy word for it, theodicy. And some have developed entire religious and life systems built around dealing with the problem, like Buddhism. And in simple forms, Buddhism says life is suffering. Suffering is caused by desire. You eliminate suffering by eliminating desire. And the path forward is, is Buddhist practice that's designed to deal with the problem of suffering. Other systems have attempted to deal with suffering by denying its existence, like Christian science or Hinduism, where sickness and evil are a kind of illusion or unreality. For the atheist, suffering is simply a fact of living in an impersonal, uncaused, and ultimately purposeless cosmos, a world of cause and effect. There's no ultimate meaning in pain or pleasure. Whatever is, just is. Humans don't actually live consistently that way. There's not ever probably been a, an atheist who's consistently lived what they say they believe. For most people, the strategy is simpler. Try to minimize pain, maximize pleasure as much as you can. It has little to do with religious or philosophical systems, more to do with dealing with life as it comes at me today. <clears throat> but even then, there remains for every human a belief behind their behavior. Is there purpose in my pain? And is there purpose in pleasure or not? And the suffering increases when the purpose behind the suffering decreases. And the opposite is true as well. I was watching a film about a Soviet official who gave the West some key information at the height of the Cold War in order to try and divert nuclear disaster. He was caught, imprisoned, tortured, 
eventually executed, and his mental anguish surpassed his physical suffering when he was led to believe his efforts had accomplished nothing other than more pain for himself and his family. And a turning point was when he found out that his efforts had impact on international security, possibly helping to avert war, and suddenly the same amount of suffering found meaning, and that changed the suffering for him. His pain was still painful, but it was pain with purpose. And you heard from two in our congregation who've practiced gratitude in the face of suffering. Both of them have done what we've talked about before. They've, they've gone out and they've hunted the good stuff. And it's really easy to focus on the bad, but they've hunted the good stuff. But not just randomly, but they've done that with a confident faith in God. Their practice of thanksgiving is based on belief in the purposes of God. Their faith in God empowers gratitude in the midst of pain. Last week, we looked at belief, life, and certainty from 1 John. Today, we're going to look at how that certainty empowers gratitude in the midst of difficulty and suffering. And John's focus of certainty was on Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. And our focus of gratitude and suffering is on Jesus. So we're in Hebrews 12. Let me read it to you. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The author of Hebrews and his original readers were up next in the faith arena they said we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses who've gone before he mentioned these some of these in the preceding chapter they finished their race their lives had given evidence of the faithfulness of God to sustain them to the end this doesn't mean that all these these people thrived at every single point they certainly did not but their lives gave evidence of God's enduring faithfulness so now for us the original author and his readers of this letter, they've joined that large group of witnesses. They finished their race. And so God's work speaks to us. We're up next. We're surrounded by an even greater cloud of witnesses, an additional 2,000 years of them. And this passage doesn't indicate that those who've gone before are looking at our lives from some heavenly grandstand as if they don't have something better to do. The word witness is a word that we get the word martyr from. And the meaning is, is that what is the, the witness is their lives. Their, wit, their lives bear witness to the faithfulness of God. And some were martyred, literally killed for their faith. Others lived long lives, but they also gave their lives for their faith. They were martyrs of the slow, long type. Like Paul wrote, I die daily, meaning he daily gave his life for the glory of God and the good of others. He was what he called a living sacrifice. In track, in the field events, the, the judge will say, Terry up next, Bruce on deck, meaning Bruce is next after next. And when you're on deck, you better be getting your sweats off, getting squared away for your turn to jump or to throw or to vault. When you're up next, it's time to go. It's your turn. So in chapter 11, the writer tells the stories of God's faithfulness and to varying degrees, the human faithfulness in response to God's faithfulness are the ones who'd already finished their race. And when he wrote the letter that we just read, he and his readers were up next. And as I was reading this this week, I was thinking, in a real sense, I was on deck. You know, they're up next, and I was on deck. Guess what? 
Now they've joined those witnesses. We're up next. So Terry, you're up next. Robert, you're up next. Suzanne, you're up next. You are now up next to give witness to the faithfulness of God. It's your turn. Therefore, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw every, off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So just like the track athlete shares, sheds their sweats, gets rid of other things that might hinder them, we are to continually shed the sin that hinders our race. And we spent weeks talking about this in First John, so I'm not going to go back there. I'll leave it at that. That's the negative, throw off the sin. The positive is run the race marked out for us with perseverance. Perseverance means just what you think it would mean. It means to finish well despite difficulties. To run hard for a time without finishing is not biblical endurance. To run without having any difficulties is not really biblical endurance. Failure along the way is normal. Discouragement along the way is normal. Finishing is essential. We mess up, we get up, we move on. And so look at how our race is described. It's described as being marked out for us. There are a lot of choices we make. Robert talked about some of the choices he's made. Suzanne, the choices she's made. There are a lot of choices we make. There are a lot of choices made for us. In terms of the race we're called to run, a lot of this charge chosen for us. You don't pick your parents. Robert didn't pick for his grandchild to be born blind and deaf. Suzanne and Doug didn't choose this disease. These are God's sovereign foundations for your life. Tolkien's famous dialogue in the Fellowship of the Ring between Frodo and Gandalf gets at this reality. Frodo said, I wish it need not have happened in my time. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times, but it's not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that's given us. And so we are to run by throwing off what impedes us with a heart to finish, with a faith that this path has been chosen for us. It is not random. So we can fail to win the race or run the race through sin. We can fail to finish the race well by lack of endurance. And we can just sit down and despair because we don't like the race we've been given to run. Or we can run with endurance the race marked out for us. And then how do we run that race? We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Now, there's so much in that passage to instruct us, but let's focus on our theme for today, gratitude and suffering. Whenever you compete, you look somewhere. You can glance around, but you can only fix your eyes on one thing at a time. You can look around at other competitors. You can look behind you, or you can look at your goal. And we're told specifically how we're to run this race with endurance. We're to fix our eyes, metaphorically meaning we have to fix our perspective, our hearts. And like Robert said, we have to keep reorienting. It's not a one-time thing. We keep fixing our eyes on Jesus. He is our certainty. And as we look at him, what do we see? We see that he endured the cross. He dismissed its shame for the joy set before him. And unlike us, Jesus could have opted out at any time. He had the power to stop what other humans were doing. He had the power to control outcomes. He did not enjoy the cross. But he didn't disconnect from suffering by trying to eliminate desire. He didn't become passionless. His death is called the passion of the Christ. He fully engaged all of it. He suffered in the garden in his body and mind over the coming trial that he was going to experience. He went to the cross for the joy set before him. 
And his certainty of purpose didn't eliminate suffering, it transformed it. And that's what is instructive for us. So as we look at him, what are we to see? He didn't love the pain of the cross. Crucifixion was not the joy set before him. He went to the cross for the joy set before him. What was his joy? Look at John 15. The Lord is instructing his disciples in the face of his impending arrest and death. He said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. His joy was tied up in obedience to the Father, and he's saying, I want you to share in this joy, to be faithful to the will of the Father. John 6, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. His purpose was the will of God. That was a joy set before him. And that will, of course, meant our good, our salvation. We were part of the joy set before him. So as we look at Jesus and try to understand how do we, like Jesus, endure the cross for the joy set before him, how do we implement that in our lives? Well, we don't deny or avoid pain. Those are common world systems. Pain always hurts. Mental pain, relational pain, physical pain. I was talking to someone dear to me last week. This person would trade physical pain for some of the pain they're experiencing in their hearts and minds. Pain always hurts, but pain without purpose destroys. And there's another approach that humans have taken to pain. One was um, denial, disengagement. But another purpose, a common, a common approach to, to suffering is to try to invent purpose. And we, we, we look for meaning in suffering because we know and kind of intuitively no meaning in this suffering increases my suffering. So I've heard more times than I can count in my life someone say to me, everything happens for a reason, sometimes in very tragic circumstances. Sometimes people mean by that because I know them a faith in God. Other times because I know the people who are saying that, it's a sort of Hail Mary. They're just throwing the long ball. Time's running out. There's, there's no purpose. They haven't lived like there's purpose, haven't lived like God's in charge, but they can't deal with the fact that there's just nothing in this but suffering and then darkness. And so everything happens for a reason. And I don't say this in those circumstances, but I, I think it, what reason? And who makes it so? Who exactly is bringing purpose to this suffering? The universe? Fate? You? I don't think, I don't say that, but I do think that. If you invent your own purpose, it's not going to be a strong foundation for your life. It's just wish thinking. And people who invent purpose, they don't do really well. They don't have a foundation. The foundation gets, gets eroded. We consider Jesus not our own constructions of purpose when we're tempted to grow weary and lose heart, we don't look internally to our own resources. We look externally to him. One of my favorite verses, Paul said, I eagerly expect and hope that I will no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether I live or whether I die. And what's so important to me about that passage is I can think about what might happen and wonder, am I going to have the courage for that? Well, I eagerly expect and hope that I will because it will come from him, not from me. And then I think, well, am I going to have a lot of courage? And the answer is, no, you're going to have sufficient, just enough. Can I have more than sufficient? 
I like a, I like that little a little extra. No, you're going to have sufficient. So we look to Christ for purpose and suffering. Our joy, like His joy, is to come from a life of faithfulness. The Lord's purpose was the will of His Father. Our joy, our purpose, is found in surrender to the will of God. But this is really important. This is not passive resignation. That was that was the Buddha's conclusion. Was the the answer to suffering, enduring, is passive resignation. This is not that. This is passion-empowered trust. Our desires are not to be eliminated, but to be reoriented to what, like Robert said, matters most. This won't make pain painless, but it will certainly stop pain from being purposelessness. Hope need not drain from your life. I've watched people live and die without hope. And I've watched people live and die with hope. You don't just need purpose for the end, the last breath. You really need purpose all along the way. So for the Buddha, it was not just the... Ba- and, I, and I'm not bashing Buddhism. I, have, I think it's wrong. I have friends who are Buddhists. And I try to describe Buddhism in a way that they would agree, yeah, that's accurate description. No straw man attacks. But I disagree. For, for the Buddha, it's not just the bad stuff that's the problem. Existence itself is suffering. So think about it, when you're enjoying the day or your family or a moment of happiness, like last weekend was our Thanksgiving. Every other year my kids coordinate with their in-laws and they, we do Thanksgiving and Christmas all one weekend. Next year we do Christmas together. So this year was Thanksgiving and Christmas and then at Christmas time they'll go to their in-laws, the traders. And um, <laughs> so as, you're, as I'm watching my grandkids hanging around having fun when they were having fun, um, which was most of the time, I can look and the thought does cross my mind, this is fleeting. This is not going to last. Because this is a year my dad wasn't there. This is fleeting. So, when you're in some kind of pain, life can be unbearably hard. Life at that moment is suffering. But this disengagement approach is, yeah, but when you're experiencing great joy, you can see the shadow lurking behind the sunshine. That's not going to last. This joy can't be trusted. So pretty much all of life becomes suffering. So the Buddha was right that neither joy nor sorrow were to be trusted in that sense, but he was wrong about the solution. The solution is not detachment to self-protect, but faith in Christ. John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. How? Believe in God. Believe also in me. So purpose in pain and purpose in pleasure are found in faithfulness to run the course marked out for us. We can be thankful in suffering. We don't have to like what we're going through. It's it's inconceivable to like what they're going through. Jesus himself asked for another way. We can do the same. Suzanne's asking for another way. I'm asking for another way. Doug is as well. But what they're doing in the end is after they've asked for another way, they, they're saying, not my will, but yours be done. So what other way is it that you can live in this? Well, you can live without purpose and you can live ultimately in despair. Faith in God's faithfulness is what empowers our faithfulness in all things. When we say we trust God, this is not wish thinking. It's not randomly thinking the cosmos is going to throw us some meaning. No, this is confidence in God's faithfulness as we look to the cross and the resurrection and the reality of Christ. This doesn't mean we're just sucking it up. 
Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. It's not endurance for endurance. It's endurance for joy, real joy. Let's pray together. I'm going to give you a moment to just talk to God about your life, your suffering, your struggles, your joys, your pleasures, and then we're going to worship God together.